0: hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast and today we're talking about Iris Murdoch's lucky novel as she as she called it, her fourth novel the Bell uh, published in 1958. Now I'm sure for lots of you listening this will be one of your absolute favorites in of Murdoch's and um, I hope you get an awful lot out of this podcast because we've got some wonderful guests um, on the podcast today. So a little bit of background um, to the novel to begin with it was published in 1958 but written over just a few months in 1957 um, in oxford and it's really uh the uh, the novel where i suppose she called it a lucky novel where so many um elements that she wanted to bring in to her earlier three novels um come together she's thinking about how religion should come in she's thinking about um how to deal with um, homosexuality just a a year or so after the wolfenden report and she's thinking how to um, blend these two the two ideas of um passion and repression and the release of sexuality and also um, ideas of nature and goodness and of course always goodness and paying attention um, to the other that comes through so strongly in Murdoch's novels. Joining me today on the podcast um, we have uh, Frances White who's the Deputy Director of the Iris Murdoch Research Centre here at the University of Chichester. Uh, Of course she was a guest on the first ever podcast um, when we talked about Under the Net but she's well-known for um, writing the award-winning uh, biography of um, Murdoch, Becoming Iris Murdoch. She's just um, writing up um, Unbecoming Iris Murdoch about Murdoch's later years, but of course she's also um, well-published across um, the range of Murdoch's work and indeed philosophy. Hello, Francis. Hello, Miles. Hi, good to have you back again. Thank you. Um, joining us from Ireland is uh, Mark Patrick Hederman. Hello, Mark.
1: Patrick. Hello there, Miles.
0: Hi. Mark Patrick's been a Benedictine monk at Glenstall Abbey um, in Ireland for the last 60 years, um, during which time he was uh, the headmaster of the school and he was also the abbot of the community. And he's published two books concerning Iris Murdoch, um, The Haunted Inkwell in 2001, and also The Opal and the Pearl, which came out in 2017. He was also one of the um, speakers at the Murdoch conference um, way back when in 2006. So I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. And my final guest today is James Marriott. Hello, James. Hello. Hi. Uh, James studied English Lit at um, Oxford and then uh, went on to um, study for masters at University College London. And he's now the deputy literary editor of the Times and um, also an occasional columnist and indeed has been a um, a, a long-term Murdoch reader having first read um, Murdoch as indeed um, many of us did as a teenager. Thank you all so much for joining me. And we're going to start with Francis. Francis, um, give us your impressions of the bell um, and tell us a little bit about how you came
2: to read it. How I came to read it, that's an interesting one. I started reading Murdoch with the unicorn and then the flight from the enchanter when I was a teenager. So I would have been a late teenager, I think, when I first read the bell and it did impress me greatly partly just the mood and the atmosphere of the book but also i found dora and indeed at that time michael very sympathetic characters that i could really relate to i will say a bit more about how perhaps that's changed over the years but i wanted just to give um some general remarks, really, about The Bell, which is the last novel of the 1950s, as Miles said, her fourth novel. But Peter Conradi, her biographer and friend, and one of the best critics of Murdoch's work, has spoken of Murdoch as having five different debuts in her first five novels. And I think that's very true. Each of them are incredibly different from each other the first five, and The Bell really stands out from all of them as being quite, quite different. Many people, Hilda Spear says directly it's her, the best of the early novels, and Murdoch said it was her favourite among the early novels. It was written, as Miles said, fairly quickly. She began on the 3rd of June 1957, writing the first draft of a novel that at that time she called The Great Bell, And that draft was finished on the 4th of September, remarkably quickly, in 11 notebooks altogether. And then in October, she began the second draft. And it would be interesting. I haven't been able to do that because they're all in Iowa. But it would be interesting to see how much it changes between those two drafts. And it was published in November 1958. So it's very, very quick, quick production. One of the things about Murdoch that I think we have to remember is because she's also a professional philosopher and because of her stature as a public intellectual, she can seem dauntingly highbrow to many people or dauntingly difficult. They get this impression of her. And in fact, she's anything but. She's a natural born storyteller. And one of her great ambitions was to write a rattling good yarn, as she called it. Her favourite book was Treasure Island, which her father read her as a child, and she thought that storytelling was absolutely paramount. And when you read The Bell, or indeed any of her early novels, you are just thrown straight into a fast and racy story, and it tumbles you along pell-mell through the chapters. And it's only later when you go back to it and read it with a more critical eye and actually start to analyze and take it apart that you realize how very, very carefully constructed her novels are. And Miles adverted to the first podcast that we did some time ago on Under the Net. And that's in 20 chapters. And when we analysed that, we could see that between chapters 10 and 11, halfway through the book, there's a hinge point at which the plot turns and everything changes. And the same is true of the bell. The bell is in 26 chapters. And between chapters 13 and 14, you've got this absolute shift again, which I'll go into in a moment. Now, the overarching trajectory of the story is very interesting. There are two outsiders, Dora and Toby, and they joined the community at Imba in the first chapter, and in pro- we see the novel through their eyes and through Michael Mead's eyes. We see the story unfolding through their eyes. And they are the watchers of this community. They're they're not inside it. So they're looking at it from outside. And at the midpoint of the novel, this place where I'm saying it hinges between chapters 13 and 14, Dora leaves Imber and returns to London. And this is the hinge of the story. And you've got this bell image going right the way through because of the, the actual bell and metaphor of the bell that's used in the novel. And it's as if at this point the bell swings, the bell of the novel swings and goes the other way. And their actions, while they are at the community, they raise the bell together, and Toby arouses Michael. Those actions from these two outsider figures lead to the dissolution of the community in the last chapter. So you've got them arriving at the beginning, the crux in the middle, and by the end, they have caused the whole thing to disintegrate completely. So that's your your big overarching trajectory of the story. But the other thing that's interesting is the way that Murdoch makes the action accelerate through using crisis points. This is the second aspect of the structure. So the first crisis doesn't occur until chapter 11, a long way into the story. It's gone very slowly. It's a pastoral summer, hot, flowery, natural scene. The rhythms are very, very slow and drowsy almost. And in chapter 11, when Michael kisses Toby, that's the first crisis that something's going to happen now that it's all going to change. And then three chapters later, when Dora hears the blackbird singing at Imber over the phone from London and has her epiphany in the National Gallery, which I'm going to read you later, and she returns to Imber. That's the second crisis. And then there's three more. So you've got a crisis in chapter 11, a crisis in chapter 14, fairly slow beginning. And then chapters 23, 22, 23 and 25 have three faster and faster crises coming along pell-mell and rushing us through. So in chapter 22, Dora rings the bell in the dark and brings the whole community down on it. In chapter 23, Catherine tries to drown herself and throws herself at Michael and you've got another crisis there. And then in chapter 25, Nick, Catherine's twin brother, shoots himself. And this escalating sense of crisis makes the, the rhythm accelerate tremendously as the novel goes on and it's actually very cleverly done and it's easy to miss you you don't think about it when you're first reading it and behind that there's an intricate kind of structuring going on of different groups so you've got my paul and dora's marriage i should have said at the beginning that this novel has one of the best opening lines of any novel anywhere and, and certainly of murdoch's novels and in fact um It was sort of famous for this opening line and has to do with John Bailey, which I'll perhaps come back to later. So it begins, Dora Greenfield left her husband because she was afraid of him. She decided six months later to return to him for the same reason. And that's interesting, instantly piquing our interest. Why is she afraid of him? What will happen to this marriage? And Paul and Dora's marriage goes right the way through the novel. So in chapter one, you've got the backstory of how she left and is returning to Paul, their reunion, Paul at work, Paul putting Dora down, Dora leaving for London after Paul makes love to to find her her other lover Noel, returning to Imber and to Paul, who she realised is her real life, Paul searching for Dora, Noel coming to Imber, Dora becoming frantic about Paul finding out and ringing the bell. Paul finding the old bell, Dora trying to save Catherine, Paul leaving for London, Dora staying in Im- Im- Imber and destroying his letters, and then at the end of the novel, Dora leaving Paul the second time, this time for good. And that story of their marriage and its collapse is woven through other stories. So at the same time, you've got the story of Michael and Nick and Toby, and I'm sorry if we're giving spoilers to people who haven't read the novel, but it's impossible to talk about it without saying what happens, really. So Michael Mead, one of the chief characters in the novel, who owns Imber and who has created this community, lay community there, was a schoolmaster. And while he was a schoolmaster, he was attracted to one of his pupils, Nick Forley And Nick, after a religious experience, decided to tell the headmaster of Michael's attraction to him. And Michael was dismissed. And that has been disastrous. And then this young man, Toby, who's arrived at Imber for the summer before he goes up to Oxford to read Engineering, he is, becomes kind of Nick's understudy in a way. Michael falls in love with Toby instead. And that story of Michael and Nick and their very uneasy relationship, Nick's up on the edge of the community, living in a lodge by himself. He's there because his sister is about to go into the convent and he wants to be with her before she does. Toby is sent to live with him in the lodge and they're very uncomfortable together. And that story of those three is another intertwining pattern through it.
0: So it's interesting, actually, uh, Francis, this this question about um, the interweaving of different storylines. And it, and I think it, it comes back as well to um, not just the hinge points you were talking about, you know, these two separate um, elements of the novel coming together. But it's also a question about innocence and experience. And Mark Patrick, I wonder if you could sort of pick up some of the threads that um, Francis was talking about and, and tell us also about a little bit about your experience of reading the novel.
1: Well, I have found that Iris Murdoch kind of haunts me during my life um, i'm a benedictine monk uh, this story the bell is situated in a benedictine setting because the community that uh, francis was talking about this um lay community is situated beside a benedictine monastery and there has been a benedictine monastery there for since um The 12th century. Now, obviously, it's not still the same one. And the image of the bell for me is really uh, a true uh, sound, or a beautiful sound, or a real sound from what should be uh, a community that is Christian community uh, as it should be so i found uh, i was reading this book in 1976. now that was a year before our community here in ireland was celebrating its 50th anniversary of existence because just like uh, the community there the dissolution of the monasteries meant that all Benedictines were thrown out and we were the first uh, community of Benedictines in Ireland, the first male community to actually exist since the dissolution of the monasteries. So it was kind of uh, strange to me that uh, this book would arrive, as as all her books have done during my life, at a time when something um, kind of... Uh, Sinister was happening in not in really sinister, but but similar to what she was talking about in her novels. So at this point, we were planning almost a similar kind of lay community to the one that Iris describes in the Bell. And what I found so marvelous about the book—it's terribly funny book. Uh, And I agree with Frances so much that she's a tremendous storyteller and I find, I read it again when this podcast was being uh, proposed and it's a terrific read, Uh, I'm carried with it all the time, Uh, I think uh, she's a tremendous storyteller. but what she describes there are all the horrific possibilities of frightful kinds of communities that one can uh, imagine and especially after vatican ii in the catholic church uh, we began to bring in the most hideous changes that um created all kinds of uh, ghastly problems for people trying to live together. So what I found about the book was that it was a handbook for all that could go wrong if you were trying to set up a community in the beginning of the 1960s. So that was the major uh, interest for me in this book, now, the other is that uh, I'm uh, s- myself studying philosophy and I found that Iris um, was one of the major philosophers of the 20th century for me, that she really, I mean, she had studied philosophy in Cambridge and she studied taught for 15 years in Oxford, so she knew all the philosophers. From Plato to Wittgenstein. In fact, Wittgenstein was uh, in Cambridge when she was there, so she knew them all, but I got the impression that she decided that philosophy was a game invented by men, and that it was really uh, not fit for purpose when you're trying to describe human beings. I mean, these huge concepts, uh, Wittgenstein had these idea his one of his favorite concepts was the net for capturing various uh, ideas and under the net was describing how she had to actually go much deeper than that in order to um, describe human beings especially when human beings are in love with each other and not only in love with each other but in love with God so Sex, she realized, was always going to be a major energy that from the beginning of time has been used as an allegory for any connection with God. But also, of course, with our and if you're in a community of any kind, it's going to come and interfere with whatever uh, arrangements are made for people trying to live together without murdering each other. So I found the bell to be a remarkable synthesis of several uh, situations that were happening in my own life at that particular time. Now, the the actual um, situation that we were in was the attempt to come up to date in terms of our own community. And you see with the dissolution of the monasteries what you're trying to do is you're trying to reinvent what was created by Saint Benedict just after the collapse of the Roman Empire, when he wrote a little rule which has been in existence for 1600 years and has allowed people to live as a community for that length of time. It's an extraordinary phenomenon in every country and in every uh, part of the world. This little rule for beginners, as he calls it, can be used by people to create a community. And that's what we were doing in Ireland um, just at the beginning of, of the 20th century. So the, the book had several um, very important lessons for me and i have found all through my life i've read every book she wrote and used to wait for them coming out because they were almost like prophecies they were describing something which was happening in my life and at this particular moment with the bell it was really trying to sound the right note that Saint Benedict created in 420 so it's ages ago right through the middle ages how do you actually recreate that uh, in the 20th century and exactly at the time when uh, Iris Murdoch was dealing with problems of, you know death of God um, she actually I suppose was just before the sexual revolution and Luckily for her, before the AIDS uh, problem that came in later, so uh, I found that her life was really uh, a kind of laboratory in which she used all the people. In I mean, you yourself, Miles, were was uh, describing her relationship with Bridget Brophy, but I mean, there was a whole collection of people whom she was having sexual and um, loving relationships with and they were the source of her novels so it's almost like as if she was a psychotherapy for the 20th century and that each one of the novels represents a certain cardiograph of how uh, different types of people, uh, whether they're male or female, uh, connect with one another. And uh, it's brilliant. I mean, she she really is an extraordinary uh, teacher. And, and we should be able to learn how to not make such fools of ourselves when we're trying to love one another, having read her novels. Yes, I, I would
0: absolutely agree with that, this question of um, her acute psychological awareness, not just of herself, and of course there are elements of her own life that she brings into her fiction. Certainly perhaps perhaps more late, um, later on in in, in her works. Um, but yeah, I think also to pick up on a a uh, something you were you mentioned, Mark Patrick, about um of when you read the novels, I think is is um, interesting. And certainly I, I'm I'm sure all of us um uh have, have reread The Bell in the last um you know last few weeks, last few months. and 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 thought about when we when we first read it certainly when I first read it about oh goodness maybe 18 years ago it certainly spoke to me in in a different way than it does when I just read it just last weekend so um which is you know different elements of the the novel stand out and James I'm 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 sure for you as well there are um different parts of the book that stand out more um reading it you know 10-15 years after you um first read it
3: yes absolutely and rereading it um this time as my homework for this podcast I was really amazed at how much I sort of rediscovered that first the feelings that I had of that first teenage experience of reading the book. I was talking about this on Twitter and I realized that an awful lot of people discovered Iris Murdoch as teenagers and I think an awful lot of them discovered The Bell and I think my experience of reading her when I was 16 um, was probably quite representative. I remember my dad left a copy of The Bell which had a horrible cover that cover with a picture from the TV adaptation on the front in the corner of my bedroom and said oh you know this might interest you and I thought god I'm not reading that stupid looking book with the terrible picture from the TV adaptation on the front of it and then I think a couple of months later I picked it up and it sort of it was an incredibly sort of transformative moment for me in 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 that part of my life and I think a lot of people experienced that experienced it that way. I felt the bell was suddenly inducting me into this Much more serious, much more important, much more adult world that I had perhaps always hoped existed or thought I might have glimpsed and suddenly had found sort of unveiled for me. I think some of my initial responses to the novel I looked back on a few years later, in my early 20s, with a little bit of sort of skepticism. I think I was, there were, as everyone always notes, there were sort of easily parodable elements of Iris Murdoch and the often slightly economically and socially idyllic lives her characters lead I think might lead you to suspect that a lot of the pleasure of her novels or a lot of the guilty pleasures of her novels come from vicariously inhabiting a much more comfortable much more refined social world and that was certainly a lot of what appealed to me as a teenager and I, I had gone through a phase of a few years of tending to dismiss her and tending to think that I'd been wrong to rate her as highly as I did and then Rereading The Bell in the last week or so, I just found myself incredibly powerfully transported back to that teenage experience of reading. And I think that I understood that it wasn't maybe the sort of slightly slightly trivial experience I briefly or for a while thought it to be. And I thought I was able to discover that the book was incredibly powerful. And I really vividly remembered the sensation of what a wise and interesting and complicated book it was, which are things I think I tended to forget in the interim. I also, one of the things that I remember really appreciating about it was the sheer, I remember reading it and when I first read it I just thought this is the this is the perfect novel. Um, I felt it was the first grown-up book I'd ever read, which wasn't quite true, but it felt like the sort of novel that I'd always dreamed might exist. Um, and I, was, I remember being especially attracted to the sort of no-nonsense nature of those opening pages. Novelists are always told um, to show, not tell. But there's a glorious sort of almost 19th century high-handedness with the way that Iris Murdoch introduces her characters in the opening pages. The way that you just sort of, she just tells you Dora's, Dora's backstory. She tells you how she's feeling about her husband. She tells you all about Paul. And there's no, I think the sort of simple, the no-nonsense simplicity of that opening really appealed to me at the time and I liked when you're a teenager you just want to be told about life I think I was desperate for someone to tell me what life was about and how I should experience it and all those things I I appreciated immensely and I appreciate them again now going back to it Um, and the discovery of that book just set me off on a sort of Iris Murdoch obsession I think for most of my most of the rest of my teens I sort of reluctantly read other books but all the novels I really wanted to read were Iris Murdoch novels and I, I was never really seen around school without a copy of Nuns and Soldiers or um, <laughs> the sacred profane love machine to the bafflement of my friends and teachers, I think. But it was a real it was a really powerful obsession for me in my late teens. I, I think it's probably the case for a lot of people.
0: I, I think you're absolutely right there. Certainly um, for me in my early 20s, discovering Murdoch and then, you know, just, re, you know, it, it's, it's a moment when you, you know, you get get to the end and then you think. Oh, there's another 25 left. It's a, a wonderful feeling that there it's are a great feeling. so feeling. So, so many more to go. James, do you want to why don't you start us off then with um, a, a section from um from, from from the early part of the novel, just to give us a flavor of um of that joy that you experience?
3: So this is more a moment of actually showing, not telling, and this is Dora on the train down to Imba at the very beginning of the novel. And I think it's quite revealing of her character. And sort of, I think, plots a few of the themes and symbols that emerge uh, later in the book. So she's on the train and she sees a butterfly under the seat opposite her. Then Dora noticed that there was a red red admirable butterfly walking on the dusty floor underneath the seat opposite. Every other thought left her head. Anxiously, she watched the butterfly. It fluttered a little and began to move towards the window, dangerously close to the passenger's feet. Dora held her breath. She ought to do something. But what? She flushed with indecision and embarrassment. She could not lean forward in front of all these people and pick the butterfly up in her hand. They would think her silly. It was out of the question. The sunburnt man, evidently struck with the concentration of Dora's gaze, bent down and fumbled with his bootlaces. Both seemed securely tied. He shifted his feet, narrowly missing the butterfly, which was now walking into the open on the carriage floor. Excuse me, said Dora. She knelt down and gently scooped the creature into the palm of her hand and covered it over with her other hand. She could feel it fluttering inside. Everyone stared. Dora blushed violently. Toby and his friend were looking at her in a friendly, surprised way. Whatever should she do now? If she put the, bu- if she put the butterfly out of the window, it would be sucked into the whirlwind of the train and killed. Yet she could not just go on holding it. It would look too idiotic. She bowed her head, pretending to examine her captive.
0: What is it about that particular passage that really speaks to you?
3: I I think it's an absolutely lovely moment. And it's a a really beautifully observed little scene. And I think Mm -hmm. Iris Murdoch is often accused of being a little too grandly interested in ideas, not always sticking to the specificity of human actions. But I think that shows her at her best. I think it's incredibly revealing of the character of Dora. It's one of the sort of first two good acts you see Dora doing in the novel. The first one is that she gives up her seat to an old lady on the train who's looking for somewhere to sit down. And the second one is this rescuing of the butterfly. It also creates this lovely moment a few paragraphs later when Dora meets her estranged husband, Paul, on the platform of the station, completely having forgotten that she's holding this butterfly. And as she meets him, she opens her hands and the butterfly flies out and up into the air, which means she sort of arrives in the novel with this sort of, minor miracle it's the sort of thing you could imagine a saint doing mm. opening their hands and a butterfly just appearing and flying away i also think the butterfly is interesting it's sort of gaudy and beautiful and little frivolous and fragile like dora who's always you know described in terms of her colorful skirts and her sandals and her jazz records and her slightly frivolous time at art school and i also wonder whether there's something there's something to be said for the way that that act of goodness committed by Dora at the begin, beginning of the novel makes her look silly, and I wondered if that was something about the way that Iris Murdoch thinks of acts of goodness, that they aren't necessarily grand or important and often make us seem absurd or concerned with things that, you know, other people might think should be beneath our notice. Mm. Yeah, um, the, and the, the
0: final... idea of Sorry. small everyday acts of attention, isn't it, to to other not just other people but other things other items in the world yeah
3: and the, the sort of final thing and not- it's i wanted to notice about it was i think there's something very interesting about the the way that butterfly and its fragility is endangered by all the legs of all the other people because the novel will be about the way that you know i suppose acts of goodness and ourselves are endangered and complicated by being in a large group of other people, and something about that butterfly having to navigate its way through the legs of all the people on the train seems to say something about the danger of a large group of people and trying to preserve precious things in that context. But that could be nonsense, and that could be no. I think really I think great.
0: you're I think you're absolutely right. Of course, the butterfly motif will be um, repeated later on when 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 Dora goes to the uh, to the National Gallery. Yes, uh, but this, this this question about the, the fragility of innocence as well is just that, that that repeated motif that comes back time and again. Francis, did you want to comment on that so little section?
2: I think it's an absolutely perfect section. I agree with everything James has said. And it is, as you say, picked up later in the book. And it's part also of her wonderful humour because Dora has concentrated so hard on this butterfly that she's left Paul's suitcases and his hat and his books, which she brought for him, on the train. And then later in the novel, she manages to get them delivered to the station. So she goes down to the village to collect them, collects them, but it's very hot. So she goes to the pub to have a drink and then she leaves them in the pub and arrives back without them again. And there are these wonderful moments of comedy right the way through the novel, um, often revolving around Dora in her, in her sort of frivolous innocence there. But it is a lovely part that bit about the butterfly.
1: Shall I say that the uh, I agree completely about the Red Admiral. It's a Red Admiral butterfly. Because, you know, the male red admiral is very territorial and it patrols most of the time. So it's rather similar to Paul. And his favorite landing place is a stinging nettle. So I find all her images, if you actually take them apart, they have an endless allusion to various things that are happening it's it, it's it's a wonderful moment and and uh, the other time where she gave up her seat is a marvelous thing you know the 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 um the psychological meanderings that precede her giving up her seat are brilliantly written out and terribly funny as to whether she should or not give up her seats. But then that means that she goes down to the seat which the other woman had already booked, which puts her right beside two of the members of the community in Imber. So it's very clever. Everything is used to cement and to um, an intricate Lacing, which I always admire in her books.
0: Yes, there's certainly something that can be said for this idea of the coinc— you know, the, the small coincidences that happen. I think in some of her later novels, these coincidences can seem a little, sometimes a little bit far-fetched. But I think in *The Bell*, she gets it, she gets it just right. Yes. And, yeah, Mark Patrick, do you want? Do you, would you like yeah, to read a yeah, section I, as well? Yeah,
1: my, my my section is about how ghastly uh, lay communities can be or monasteries so it's uh, when Dora arrives in the lay community the very first thing they do is they put her into church and this is the part I want to read kneeling in the front row Dora could see a man in a black cassock who must be a priest and near him she now made out with an unpleasant shock a shapeless pile of squatting black cloth that must be a nun. Behind them, Mrs. Mark was to be seen kneeling very upright, her head covered by a crumpled check handkerchief, which she must have whipped out as she came through the door. There were no other women. Someone began to speak and Dora jumped guiltily. She listened, but could not follow what was being said. The speaker appeared to be the priest at the front. After listening for a little longer, Dora realized that it must be Latin. She was dismayed and distinctly shocked. She had retained her prejudices when she lost her religion. Dora suddenly noticed that the nun in the front row had turned round and was looking at her. Mrs. Mark also turned round and looked at her. Dora felt herself becoming red with alarm. There was a cold, familiar inevitability about these looks. With the resignation of one who had never in her life got away with anything, Dora watched Mrs. Mark get up and tiptoe round the chairs to the back so that she could lean over Dora's shoulder. Dora twisted round, trying to hear what it was that Mrs. Mark was now whispering in her ear. What? said Dora more loudly than she had intended. Sister Ursula says, please, would you mind covering your head? It's customary here. I haven't got anything, said Dora, ready to burst into tears of embarrassment and vexation. ''A hanky will do,'' whispered Mrs. Mark, smiling encouragement. Dora fumbled in her pocket and found a small, not very clean handkerchief, which she laid on top of her head. Mrs. Mark tiptoed away, and the nun looked back once more with amiable satisfaction.'' Blushing violently, Dora stared ahead of her. Her feet were hurting, and she became suddenly aware that it is extremely uncomfortable to kneel with high-heeled shoes on. She began to look distractedly about the room. She could not see it as a chapel. It was a shabby, derelict, pitiable drawing room harbouring an alien rite, half sinister, half ludicrous. Dora drew a deep breath and rose to her feet. She whipped the idiotic handkerchief from her head and walked quietly to the door and out.
0: What is it about that particular section that resonates with you?
1: Well, it's exactly the situation in a monastery. When visitors come, you know, they're expected to do the most ludicrous things which have absolutely no bearing on their normal lives, but which are supposed to be extremely meaningful in terms of the religiosity and piety of the group that are uh, in situ. And secondly, it's, it, I find it hilarious. I mean, mm, yeah. you know, it, it really is extreme. I find myself laughing out loud at times. Uh, several times during this book because the way she describes things are so beautifully done and you know um, this that particular section I see it and I uh, am aware that Dora uh, is being made so uncomfortable in, she's meant to be welcomed into this new community, but au contraire, what happens to her when she gets there is that she is made to feel completely alien, and that's I, I find Iris describes brilliantly.
0: Yes, I would certainly agree with that. It's interesting, actually, because I know we're going to come on in a minute to talk about Dora in the National Gallery, that all three of you have chosen examples where you know the, the narrative is focused on Dora.
1: Well, that's only because, uh, for me, anyway, uh, Dora is the second most interesting character in the in the book. But and, I,
0: I and who who would you put first, Michael? Michael.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think that is for me uh, a tour de force of Iris Murdoch that she describes what very, I suppose, normal in certainly in Benedictine or other settings, that you have a a kind of um, homosexual man who has um, religious, uh, priestly um, aspirations. uh, And she describes that brilliantly. But then I was so interested to read in Peter uh, Conradi's biography that she told one of her students at one stage that in the whole spectrum of her own psychology and sexuality, that she would situate herself, that's Iris Murdoch, as a male homosexual herself. So, like when Flaubert was asked how is it possible for a man like you to write about Madame Bovary so extraordinarily, his answer was, "Madame Bovary, c'est moi."
0: I think there are elements of Iris in all three of her major characters that we, you know, we, that we live through the narrative within Toby, within Dora, and within Michael. But Michael is, perhaps, I think, the most. Uh, sub- quite subversive and a little bit dangerous as well francis would you th- would you agree
2: absolutely yes i mean uh, it's very seductive because michael you are inside his mind a lot and he's likeable and you warm to his suffering and his emotional distress and i think i saw it completely through his eyes and just accepted what he said as gospel and believed his version of events And years, years later, in 2014, Pamela Osborne, I wish she could be with us for this podcast, published an extraordinary essay on the bell in the collection by Mark Luprec, Iris Murdoch Connected, in which she focuses on a single adjective, hyacinthine, which is used in the bell only twice to describe Nick's hair, which has curling tendrils. And Pamela relates this to the myth of Apollo and Hyacinth, the youth who dies of Apollo's love for him, and she sees Michael as directly responsible for Nick's death. She sees him as a paedophile, as having groomed Nick, and she warns that it it is a task for the reader not to be seduced by Michael's version of events and after I'd read Pamela's essay I've never been able to see Michael in the same light again and I do think at the end of the novel when he's going back to schoolmastering, that the chances of the whole sad situation recurring are very high and that he has not really progressed beyond where he is whereas Dora you feel and Toby they're escaping they're moving on to Better futures, brighter futures, more open worlds. But Michael may be condemned, as other murder characters in other novels are, to a repetition of his um, his traits and his tendencies.
0: Yes, I think that's that's certainly when I'm reading it now. I think I think maybe that was the eighth or ninth time I've just um, just reread it. You certainly feel that there is a danger with Michael, and not just for the act- the actions that we you know that we, we are told about in the novel, but you know the future. You know the extratextual in you know, the um, yeah. Future that he, that he has later on, James. When you're reading, when you've you know, obviously you've just reread it, do you do you feel the same, or do you feel that Michael is a bit hard done by?
3: I I, I was thinking the same thing again. Actually, and I suppose the developments of recent years have probably changed the way that I've looked at Michael's character. We're more suspicious, I think, of those sort of sexual power dynamics. Um, I I I still ended up being seduced by. By his point of view, I think. And I, I was sort of thinking about this before I came on. And I may, maybe maybe I should be more skeptical. I think what Francis had, what Francis said was very interesting. I, I when I read the book, I sort of assumed that it was written in a time and Aris Midlock's attitude to love was so sort of generous and indulgent often that we were supposed to sort of believe that this that Michael was a good person and that his Love, although maybe misplaced and forbidden, wasn't, you know, the bad thing that maybe modern readers might find it to be. Um, I, I, I thought, um, just going back to the passage um, about Dora, I think the really fascinating thing about Dora in the book is that she's by far, I think, the most physically realised character. She's always, you always, you're always aware of her physical presence. She's always uncomfortable, or she's too hot, or her high heel shoes hurt or she's sort of kneeling in the wrong position. And rereading the novel, something that really struck me was that wherever Dora is, I almost felt like all the other characters around her began to acquire a sort of in, more intense physicality. I don't know if anyone mm. else noticed this, but there are a couple of occasions when Dora looks at Toby and there's the beautiful description of Toby on the train to Imba with his hair that's cut around his head like a, like a seashell. And then of course, the part later in the novel when she encounters him bathing in the wood, and that's, I think those are two of the novel's most sort of intensely physical moments, and Dora seems to have this sort of magnetic physical force that seems to pull out the physical qualities of all the other characters, um, and that was just something I wanted to say, because it was interesting, and it sort of struck to me as uh, Mark Patrick was reading. Sorry, there was a little off topic, sorry.
0: Not round. at all, I think you're, you're right, um, and I think she does this with um, young people throughout her novel, um, whether, you know, whether they're <laughs> sort of some, somewhere between sort of 15, 16, and sort of mid-20s, she's, she's you know, there, there are regular and recurring um, sort of physical elements that she'll bring into her descriptions of those particular characters all the way through. Whether they're dangerous, like beautiful Joe and Henry and Kate, or, or whether they are, you know, innocence, um, innocence personified, in in as in some regards, Toby is. So I think, you know, I think you're right to uh, to point that out. And I, th- I think there are those kind of, that that kind of conflict exists within Dora as well. This, this, you know. Even though, of course, Paul at the beginning wants to change her, and she wants to change for him. You know, the changing from the jazz records and the and the and the big skirts into something far more um, staid, and perhaps we might even say, you know, comp- well away from her what her own personality is. And that changes, of course, when she's when she's back in London. Um, Francis, do you want do you please read us um, the your chosen passage? I think you know pro- probably one of the most important points of the novel when she um, when she's back back in London and you know leaves um, leaves noel's flat and, and and goes to the national gallery
2: yes i will indeed um, as you say she's back in london back in that adulterous relationship with noel back with her jazz records her skirts drinks and then paul rings up from imber and she hears this blackbird and suddenly everything changes and she has to leave the flat and leave the jazz and leave the food and leave the sex behind and she doesn't know what to do with herself and she wanders almost by instinct into the national gallery and this was a place of great significance for Iris Murdoch, who had lost belief in God but wanted to retain belief in the value of good and was worried about the loss of religion and wanted to keep concepts of transcendence and holiness without keeping the sort of meta narrative of Christianity and the metaphysics of it that she couldn't accept. And she tries to make secular equivalents for religious concepts like grace and repentance. And she finds galleries to be sacred spaces. And this is one of the best examples in her whole oeuvre of somebody experiencing art in an almost religious way and it having a real effect on their life. Dora had been in the National Gallery a thousand times and the pictures were almost as familiar to her as her own face. Passing between them now, as through a well-loved grove, she felt a calm descending on her. She wandered a little, watching with compassion the poor visitors armed with guidebooks who were peering anxiously at the masterpieces. Dora did not need to peer. She could look, as one one can at last, when one knows a great thing very well, confronting it with a dignity which it has itself conferred. She felt that the pictures belonged to her and reflected ruefully that they were about the only thing that did. Vaguely consoled by the presence of something welcoming and responding in the place, her footsteps took her to various shrines at which she had worshipped so often before, the great light spaces of Italian pictures, more vast and southern than any real south. Dora stopped at last in front of Gainsborough's picture of his two daughters. These children stepped through a wood, hand in hand, their garments shimmering their eyes serious and dark, their two pale heads, round full buds, like yet unlike. Dora was always moved by the pictures. Today she was moved, but in a new way. She marvelled with a kind of gratitude that they were all still here, and her heart was filled with love for the pictures, their authority, their marvellous generosity, their splendour. It occurred to her that here at last was something real and something perfect. Here was something which her consciousness could not wretchedly devour, and by making it part of her fantasy, make it worthless. The pictures were something real outside herself, which spoke to her in kindly and yet in sovereign tones, something superior and good, whose presence destroyed the dreary trance-like solipsism of her earlier mood. When the world had seemed to be subjective, it had seemed to be without interest or value. But now there was something else in it after all. These thoughts, not clearly articulated, flitted through Dora's mind. She had never thought about the pictures in this way before, nor did she draw now any very explicit moral. Yet she felt that she had had a revelation. She looked at the radiant, sombre, tender, powerful canvas of Gainsborough. And felt a sudden desire to go down on her knees before it, embracing it, shedding tears. And that epiphanic moment is when Dora changes completely, goes back to Imber. And it's a real key point in the book and a key point, I think, in Murdoch's fiction.
0: Mm, It's a a moment of transcendence, isn't it? That's the transcendence that she talks about. Yeah. Mark Patrick, do you want to say a little bit uh, about that?
1: Um, yes, uh, but actually, I would like to say one thing about Michael as well. Is that yeah, all right? Of
0: course, yeah.
1: Yeah, because I get the feeling, you see, what Francis was saying about being a pedophile, I mean, all that has really entered our radar screen in recent years. Well, certainly, when I read the book first, that never entered my head. It, it, it's... Um, it's a later uh, context. But my feeling is that what Iris was accusing Michael of was not loving Nick. The, at the You see, Nick died by suicide and uh, he had twice when he came to Imber uh, appealed to Michael and Michael was so caught up in his own um, image of himself as a priest and as a uh, a sort of pure person that he he wasn't prepared to make any response. If you remember at the very um, after the death he, um, um, he said that Nick had appealed to him and that Michael had denied him Michael had concerned himself with keeping his own hands clean his own future secure when instead he should have opened his heart should impetuously and devotedly and beyond all reason have broken the alabaster cruse of very costly ointment you see I think Iris was an amazingly original and daring um, ethical philosopher, and I got the impression, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting for a moment that what Francis said isn't true, that um, when he goes back to his work as a teacher, which he wouldn't be allowed to do nowadays, uh, that this might happened again. But I think in the terms of this novel, uh, Iris, the bell you see that's retrieved, um, has is is at the bell of love, and that that's um what they're trying to install is the is perfect love just like um what she finds in the Gainsborough painting is beauty um it's also love and that's what iris felt she wanted to understand was m- m- as much beauty as love it was. Uh, part of her uh, sort of desire to find Plato's ideals. So I, I, I so agree, of course, that she was living at a time when we had lost religion, but the but mythology and art um, somehow or other allowed us to, the gods to return, if you like, yeah.
0: I think I'd... Um... I suppose you know I, I think we can hold those, both of those elements together. I think she's trying to I think she's trying to do both i think the, the the element of the hyacinthine is far and you know and the extra textual life that um, Michael is then possibly going to have is is far more subtle, but I think you know the, the, the questioning about um you know the, the symbolism of the bell and the bell of course being the voice of love as it's it made, made quite clear is perhaps more central to her thinking when she's writing the novel, and perhaps those other the those other Elements perhaps more um, more relevant to our own time. Now, I think I think the novel speaks to both its own time. Of course, it speaks it speaks to us now in in perhaps different ways. And of course, you know, and perhaps as we, we reread um, at different stages in our life, it also gives us a different reading. Uh, James, do you want to um, come in on um, on any of those issues?
3: Yeah, I think it's an extraordinary passage, and it's so um, it's so excitable. I-, I just wanted to talk a bit about. Iris Murdoch as a writer of prose. Um, Because much as I love her, I'm not always her greatest endorser as a prose stylist. And I think... I I think this passage shows Iris Murdoch's prose working at full pelt in a way that all all its problems are on display. um, And yet somehow manages to be successful at the same time. I don't know what everyone else thinks of this, but there's the bit... Uh, that Frances just read, um, yet she felt that she had had a revelation. She looked at the radiant, sombre, tender, powerful canvas of Gainsborough. I just think it's extraordinary, and I can think of few other novelists who'd apply for such sort of big, loose, windy adjectives um, so unspecifically to one painting, and it's just seems like such a sort of Murdochian moment. There's little, none of those adjectives is particularly applied to a specific aspect of the painting or what it depicts. And I think there's something in Iris Murdoch's prose that can go badly wrong, but here I think sort of perversely works, which is the sort of almost intellectually impressionistic application of these sort of big blustery conceptual impressionistic adjectives um, all piling up on top of each other in this kind of ecstatic um, pell-mell, run of commerce and I just think it's such an interesting moment and I sort of when Francis read it there I sort of found it working for me but I think it's interesting because I don't think many other novelists would write like that and I wondered what other people thought about that aspect of her as a pro stylist. I'm, I'm sure Francis would want to come in on that.
2: Well, yes, she's famous for these amazing strings of adjectives, and she's also famous for refusing to be edited. So I think this was pointed out at various times by um, editors who would have liked her to have changed it, but she would never change it at all. And very often she doesn't even put commas in between them. She just piles the adjectives. (laughs) And I like the impressionistic thing, because she she writes like a painter very often, and there is this sense of colouring and of layering of adjectives. And I think the very vagueness of them leaves them open to different interpretations interpretations by different readers so that each reader can bring their own sense to it somehow it's not too specific
3: I think I think that's I think that's that's really true and also um, something about I think if you were to maybe you know try and clip pair that style back or you know clip out a couple of the adjectives or ask them to be more specific you would almost lose the sort of emotional power of the of that passage of the novel it sort of comes from this the, the power of that part of the novel, I think, comes from this feeling of having sacrificed, you know, the conventional experience of a normal realist novel to something bigger and more abstract. And yes. I think that's how it works, maybe.
1: I, I think that she's very Irish there, in the sense that uh, she tries to achieve silence by verbosity, that she piles on these words in order to produce at the end of it, a kind of apophatic silence. So that she's almost mumbling prayers and prayers and prayers. And then suddenly uh, she allows you space. So it's more, she's more like Joyce than Beckett in that attempt mm-hmm. to uh, achieve for us, the reader, a kind of awe.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out that actually there's something similar happens to Toby when he's in the, um, in the Visitor's Chapel. As well, this this idea of the um, this terrible silence he experiences, and he wants to, you know, go through the grate, and he wants to see who else is in the chapel because he knows there's a nun there, um, praying, but he can't see them. And it's all, and there's I think there's a lot of you know connections between the kinds of experiences that both Dora and Toby are having um, in the mid part of the novel.
2: Peter Conradi sees the heart of the novel as Toby penetrating through the walls of the abbey where he's going poking around rather nosily and finds himself in the cemetery where the nuns are gardening and he thinks he's trespassed and the nuns say he'd gone over the wall but the nuns say no the gates are open it's nothing's locked and children are allowed in here which is, of course is a real put down for an 18 year old and they make him play on the swing before they let him go it's a marvelous moment
1: and it's an irish nun
2: yes <laughs> And there's another wonderful nun later on, the one that rescues Catherine from the water yes. when she's drowning, the aquatic nun, Mother Clare.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's the one that Dora was always meant to be talking to to yes. get back into the straight and narrow. <laughs>
2: That's right. And later she teaches Dora to swim. It's yes. wonderful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And, and of course, one thing that we haven't talked about at all, of course, are the interspersed sermons that we get from James, from the abbess, and Michael, from Nick, of course. You know, these different, you know, um, monologues about, you know, about goodness and about, you know, what do we relate to? Do we relate to sort of Kantian system of rules or do we have or some sort of William's, um you know, overview of attention? It's all in there, isn't it?
1: Yes. And James, I mean, represents the kind of ghastly uh, religion uh, of rules and regulations. Uh, he's the kind of army officer type of um of um, regulator of the community. So, I suppose they they do uh, hit off one another. And it's a, a very, I suppose, amazing moment where he's confronting Miko with uh, his pedophilia you know he's so awkward and so <laughs> anxious to, he doesn't get any kind of um, satisfaction out of being in charge at all so i do agree at all uh, about trying to create the community they're all giving sermons to each other about how it should be done
3: i i think it's really interesting and i certainly agree in finding james not me james but the novels james certainly the most dislikeable character in the book. And I think he's wonderfully characterised. He has this, sort of, I almost would have it's slightly heavy-handed, but he has this incredibly irritating habit of repeating little fragments of what I think are um, Edward Lear limericks. Um, he says that, I think, when they're talking about um, putting together a ceremony for the arrival of the bell, he says they wouldn't want to be like the old man of Thermopylae who never did anything properly. <laughs> I'm right that that's him, aren't I? Yes. Yes.
0: Um,
3: and I just think it's such a sort of uh, lovely little way of making. There's something so sort of small-minded and um, dislikable in the fact that that's the only sort of literary illusion he's a, he ever seems really capable of making. Um, and I, I also think it's interesting, speaking of characterization, of the way that all the characters in the in the novel have their sort of light motifs. Um, Toby has his you know his round head, his shell-like hair. And I think also slightly heavy-handedly, he never seems to go anywhere without leaping and bouncing and jumping through bits of grass, um, which I always wonder is a little bit, I wonder if that's a little bit overdone. Um, and I just think there's a, there's a very sort of clear opposition in I, the sort of likableness and freedom that a lot of the other characters are granted in their light leitmotifs. Um, and the contrast with, um, with James, who's so sort of persistently dislikable in his sort of rule-obsessed, narrow-minded, Edward Lear-quoting-muscular-Christianity sort of way.
2: And James actually, although he's supposed to be the good man, the saint, the only man in the place, as Nick... um says to him, says of him when he tells Toby to go and confess everything to James. It's his lack of imagination, lack of sensitivity that have caused so much trouble. Because without realising that Michael would be attracted to Toby, it was he who sent Michael to take Toby to get the cultivator when it all started, and they had the drink of cider together. And just going back a tiny bit here and talking about reading it at different times with different social mores. When I reread it recently, I found what I was really shocked by wasn't, of course, the homosexual kiss, which doesn't bother us. Any Anymore at all. It was the drink driving. <laughs> they drank <dragged> all <laughs> that sidewalk. Yeah, the yeah. Then got in the Land <laughs> Rover to come home. And I was thinking, whoa, you know, what on earth are you up to? How can you possibly get in the car in that condition? This boy asleep on your shoulder here. So it's very funny. But I... J- uh, Michael is about to go and see Nick when James calls him in and Michael obeys James and goes with him, and it's while he's talking to James that Nick shoots himself, and Michael had been about to go. So James actually has some pivotably, pivotably destructive points in the sequence of events, in fact. And we've talked quite a lot about the humor of this novel, which is absolutely wonderful, and I wouldn't want to take away from it. but. Alongside the humour, there is the horror, the horror of real human suffering and destruction and tragedy. And Nick's death is very real. And Murdoch always does this so perfectly, because what you're left with is the howling of Murphy, the dog, Nick's dog. That's what they hear is Murphy howling across the water and Murphy standing there over Nick's dead body. And Murphy sort of carries the pain for all the human beings in the loss of this precious life. And this man who was just not attended to. Properly.
0: And then tied up very nicely at the end with, with chapter twenty six with It Was Four Weeks Later. So we have this kind of you know this this time for mourning, but then this a, a time for us, you know, to for, from the to the community to dissipate and then to learn what's going to happen to Toby, to Michael and, and to Dora as well. It's it's all it's it's you know, endings are left open, but it's also the the novel is tied up very well at the end.
2: Mm. Yeah. I wanted to ask Mark Patrick what he yeah. makes of the abbess, having been an abbot yourself, because yeah. I find her a slightly sinister figure. She always seems to have knowledge of what's happening everywhere, as if there's a spy system going on that's reporting back to her what everybody's doing. And and she's she's supposed to be very good and wise, and yet she won't listen to Michael when he wants to talk to her. And by the time she will listen to him, it's too late. What do you make of her?
1: Well, I actually found it interesting, you know, uh, when the film Iris on John Bailey's book comes out and Judy Dench is playing the part, uh, she plays the part of M in James Bond as yes. well. And I got the feeling that uh, the abbess was rather like M. <laughs> so she, uh, that Iris had this kind of... Um, Imaginative uh, figure who would be a nun that would be uh, somehow superior to other people. So the, the she she almost becomes uh, a kind of um, seer. Uh, so she's almost a god or a goddess for mm-hmm. in this role. And and it, you just see her spy her through a uh, pee, uh, peephole, et etc., et cetera. I don't think she's very real at all, but uh, she's an idealized... I mean, like we we're saying about Iris's uh, attempt to replace God by the good, uh, she becomes the person who uh, is the almost... Um, perspective in the novel where it could be possible for somebody to uh, be all seeing and all good and give some kind of uh, advice to people which would help them with their lives as opposed to James you see who was just reading out a rule book
0: yes I think those two are very much um opposed in their in their particular ways of um considering life in community so as we draw our podcast to a close today um just yeah. briefly from each of you now having you know um reread the bell and, and and thought about it um over the last week or two where does this rank for you in in her in her uh, where um do you you know is it one of the best i know lots of people say it is i wonder what you all think francis
2: I still think so. Yes, yes. It, it, rereading it over and over again every few years, it never loses anything for me. In fact, it gets deeper and deeper and more and more. And it goes on just being so readable, so amusing, so harrowing. Mm. It loses yeah. nothing.
0: So, top five for you, I think. Yes. In the top five. Mark yes. Patrick, what about you?
1: Well, I always remember T.S. Eliot saying that Hamlet was a failure because Shakespeare was trying to put too much into it, whereas Richard III was perfect, because there wasn't that much. So I would see this as Iris's most perfect novel, although the other ones I find more appealing, the later baggy monsters, uh, they kind of drag me around more successfully.
0: Interesting, thank you. And um, James, how about you?
3: I think this is her best novel. Rereading it, definitely. I I, will, I will have once said the Black Prince, um, yeah, yeah. But this this one I think is the clearest, has the best characterization, the most successful plot. Everything sort of comes together in this one. As I think I think she probably I think she does herself.
0: Yes, I think perhaps the there's more kind of um, ambition within something like the Black Prince or Failing Honorable Defeat or maybe um, Philosopher's pupil with that you know enormous Dickensian cast list. But I think perhaps the Bell is where it all, as you say, does come together so nicely and. Yeah. So my thanks to my guests, to, um, to Francis White, to uh, Mark Patrick Edelman and to James Marriott. Next time on the podcast, it's the Bridget Brophy takeover. And um, Bridget Brophy, as I'm, I'm sure you know, was a long term friend and indeed lover of um, Iris Murdoch. But we're, we're celebrating Bridget in her own right, um, as it's um, a year for celebrating her work. Um, if you don't know Bridget Brophy, she was a, a writer, a critic, an activist. Um, a campaigner for the public lending rights um, and, and so much more and joining me on that podcast will be um, the editor of the recent one well, of the editors I should say of the recent um, Bridget Brophy avant-garde writer critic and activist collection Judy Kimber um, the novelist um, Jonathan Gibbs and Bridget Brophy's daughter the writer and thinker Kate Levy so my thanks to my guests and my thanks to you for listening today